As they're taking their seats, if you'd take your copy of God's Word, we're going to start in the book of Romans chapter 13. And while you're turning over to the book of Romans chapter 13, I'll kind of map out for you uh, the plan for this morning. Well, we're back on track with our uh, summer You Pick the Sermon series. And um, much to my dismay, many of you have wanted to hear a political sermon, so ready or not, here it comes. I'm going to answer all of your political questions probably in the first five minutes. And then the rest of the sermon, I'll be making a case for why you shouldn't hate me going into the Lord's Supper. Sound like a plan? And just for the record, honestly, if uh, anytime you talk politics, there's people on different sides uh, of the conversation. And uh, this is honestly from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we've been together now for three years, you and I. You know me. You know that I'll always lay my cards on the table. You know wherever they fall, they fall. You know that I side with him over any of you. You know I side with him over any of my friends. Everything I say to you outside of the little bit of my opinion that I give uh, will be from here. And if you disagree with me, which I expect many of you to, I expect my family listening also to disagree with me. Uh, that was for their benefit when they listen online. Uh, I, I want you to honestly... If you disagree with me, make it from here, not because of your opinion. You with me? Like, so I'm going to lay out a case for a biblical case for politics. And personally speaking, like as a red-blooded military man, I don't like where the chips fall, but I'm going to go where they fall. You with me? Like, we don't always like the things that God has to say. In this case, I'm not a huge fan of where we're going. But I think that's where God's taken us, and so that's where I am, unashamedly. You with me? Okay, just want to make sure. And so all that to say that if, if there is any disagreement between you and I, don't take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service if you're upset with me. And I mean that because you're not supposed to take the Lord's Supper if there's not unity. So I say that very pastorally and not, not joking. If, if you want to come to our office this week, we'll get things straight. Then we'll share the Lord's Supper together then. I'd be more than happy to do that with you. But it's in bad taste to, if there's any disunity, uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. So this probably shows poor planning on my part, doesn't it? <laughs> Anyways, I'm glad you guys are laughing a little bit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump in with both feet. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we thank you that we are in one accord, that he is the only way to get to you. Father, we thank you that all of us recognize that we're sinners saved by grace. And Father, I thank you for the unity that we have as a church body. And Father, I pray that as we open your word, see what your word has to say. Father, I pray that you would uh, impress it upon our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you would say. Lord, I pray that you would feed your people. And Father, last of all, selfishly, I pray that you would make something great out of this mess I'm about to step in. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Romans chapter 1, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, says this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's a lot to wrap your mind around. But God is the ultimate authority. 
Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And there's no authority except from him, and those which exist are established by God. And so, just to kind of lay the groundwork, I want to make sure you know going into this, that we're all on the same sheet, that uh, over in the book of, I'm going to stop for a second, I'm going to flip over the book of Daniel chapter 2, because the time seems right, but over in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's right after all of the long prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 says this, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. And then listen to the next verse, verse 21. It is he, God, who changes the time and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And so verse 21 again, it's he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. And so going into this whole conversation... I want you to see that we live in a representative democracy, right? We, as the citizens, have the authority, and then we delegate that authority to our representatives who are supposed to rule according to our desires. That's the way it's supposed to go. Even in that system, don't be so American as to think that you're really picking who runs America. You with me? You get one vote out of millions, but ultimately, whatever happens, God is establishing, okay? He's the one who raises up kings and nations, and he's the one that tears them down. And if you search all through scripture, you often see that the ruler people get are usually in accordance with the way that they're behaving. And so when God's people are repentant all throughout the Bible... God raises up the man that they need. And when God's people are disobedient all through Scripture, He also gives them the sucker that they deserve. And I stand behind that 100%. And so it's God who raises up leaders, and it's God who takes down leaders. And often, the leader you get is the leader that you deserve. And every once in a while, out of grace, God gives a wretched, repentant group of people the leader that they need to get where He wants to take them. And so I want you to see the rest of the book of Romans, chapter 13. This is the middle of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So God has established his rule, God has established our rulers, and whoever disobeys them is going to be chastised by God. That goes from capital punishment all the way to you speeding to get here on time because you woke up late. Not as much reaction as I was hoping for. Guilty. Now, for rulers, verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. So our government is supposed to be a minister of God to you and I for good, to rule over us and to have laws to keep us all safe. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. 
Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so God, or excuse me, Paul in the book of Romans sets the stage and says, listen, gang, government is a good thing. It's established by God for all of our benefit. And he says here that it's a minister of God to you for good when the right people are in office and they're administering good. When the government becomes an agency of evil, then good becomes evil and evil becomes good. You following me? And that's where we find ourselves now. Now, being a heterosexual is not a good thing. But being a transgender thing is what is applauded. And so, what I want you to see is that all things said, government is a good thing. Doesn't seem that way right now, but it's a good thing. And so now we find ourselves in a situation in America where the political landscape, the moral landscape, the economical landscape, everything is tanking. I think anybody could see that where America was 30, 40, 50 years ago is, is, was much better off than the decline that we've seen in the last, call it 30 years. You following me? Give me a little head nod just to know. It'll make me stop sweating if you just give me a little head nod, right? You don't have to agree with everything. But we're in a moral decline. And we have just going to be totally open and honest with you. We've got two people that are the front runners. You've got Hillary Clinton. You've got Donald Trump. Traditionally speaking, conservative Baptists have leaned more towards the Republican side of the House than the Democratic side of the House. Okay. Traditionally speaking, the Republican side of the house, the right wing side of the house has typically been more conservative when it comes to things like abortion. Okay. We're all on the same sheet of music. I'm going to tell you where I lean personally. Okay. This is, this is not biblical. This is my personal preference. I personally, personally lean towards the libertarian side of the house. I, I liked kind of a guy like Ron Paul. I liked his son, Rand Paul. That's just personally, that's religion and everything else out of it. I like limited government. Let the people do what they want to do. Okay? My problem is is that all that stuff breaks down after a while, right? My problem is, coming from the military, their foreign policy is very weak. You with me? And so now I want to tell you that all of the things that I've just listed don't matter in God's economy. Except for the abortion thing. Okay, and so what I want you to see is that we face a we're in a two party system. None of us can help that. We've got two parties, Republican and Democrat. One of them is more than likely going to win. And so the trouble we face is who do we vote for? Why do we vote for them? And I don't like that person, but I would rather that person win than the other person win. You following me? And so I'm going to just jump out on a shaky limb and say probably in this room, everybody here would, most people would rather see a Republican win than Hillary Clinton win. Okay? Try and, I'm going to step in it eventually, but I'm walking around it for right now. And so the problem here is that everybody has such a, I don't want to say everybody, most people have such a distaste for Hillary Clinton. And they have a distaste for Donald Trump also. But they so don't want to see Hillary Clinton in the White House that they're willing to sacrifice and vote for Donald Trump so that she... So that she doesn't... So that she doesn't get in. And so we don't... We're not happy with anything. 
but we're choosing the lesser of the two evils in order to stay away from what we think is the most evil. And I think for the most part, we're on the same sheet of music. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that when you vote, you're giving your authority as a citizen to that individual. And we do have a church culture that says, I want to throw my name behind that person, but I also want to disagree with the things that they say and do. I see that a lot. I'll follow so far, but I still want my own opinion and want to be reserved. And brothers and sisters, when you as an American citizen living in a representative democracy, when you throw your name behind somebody, you're giving them your full faith and support, whether you realize it or not. And so when you vote for someone who has evil and wicked public policies, they're doing your bidding, whether you like it or not. So when they vote to keep abortion, you voted to keep abortion. When they fight for things, you put them there. They're your representative. None of this sits well with us because we like a lot of the things that people stand for sometimes, but we don't like everything that they stand for. And what I'm saying is that when you knowingly put someone in office who has wicked stances... And you can find all over scripture that things that are acceptable in our culture are deemed wicked in scripture. I didn't write this. But when you talk about things like transgender, when you talk about things like homosexuality, when you talk about uh, lying and all of these other sorts of things that are going on, the Bible is very clear. And he, he, God, calls those things wicked. And when we cast our vote behind somebody who's supportive of certain things, you are voting for a wicked ruler, whether you like the way it sounds or not. And so the question is, okay, it sounds like, preacher, you're telling me don't vote for either one of them because both of them are unashamed liars and have wicked stances. And I say that unashamedly, and I say that as fact. Okay? That would be my opinion. But I think my opinion's a fact. I just want to make sure that I'm, I just want to make sure that when I say something that's my opinion and not from here that I tell you it's my opinion. So the question is then, what do we do? I'm telling you, when you vote for any election, when you vote for anyone to represent you, if they're not Jesus Christ himself, you're sacrificing. And you say, duh, preacher. And the reason is, is because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. So if you elect me for president, if you elect Dr. Tarkington president, you're sacrificing. Okay? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so outside of Christ, there's no perfect candidate. But what I want you to see is that... I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. That delegating our authority to someone with poor character or wicked public stances is not acceptable... Saying that the alternative would be worse is not a valid excuse to give your support to someone who's wicked. And that's not popular. And so what I want to do is I want to back up and I want to, I want to establish this biblically. Okay? I want to walk through a couple of biblical stories to make a case. 
And then that's probably where a lot of you are going to disagree. But I want you to know at the end of the day, I'm not comfortable with where I stand, but that's where I'm unashamedly standing. And so if you were to jump into God's word, you've got a couple different scenarios. You've got Matthew chapter 22. And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize a lot of these for you. But this first one we're going to, we're going to read. Matthew chapter 22 verse 25 says this. This is they're trying to catch Jesus. Matthew chapter 22 verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother. Also, the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of seven will she be? For they all had married her. And so they come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, there's only seven possible answers. Because there's seven dudes and we want to know whose wife she's going to be in the resurrection. And so looking at this from the outside, Jesus could go with oldest brother all the way down to the youngest brother. And those are your only options and listen to his answer. Verse 29, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And I think whenever we go to God and we seek his will for our lives and we say, God, it's A or B, he says, you're mistaken. Because you've already went into it and you're giving me multiple choice. And if you're genuinely asking for my will, you ask me for my will and then you do what I say, not giving me options. Every single time in my life, I've gone to God and said, okay, God, I'm presented with this decision. Do I go with A or B? He says C every single time. That's been my personal experience. And so you could go to another story. You've got a woman who's been caught in adultery. They drag the woman to Jesus. And they say, Jesus... Moses says we should stone her for being caught in adultery. What do you say? Stone her and be obedient to Moses or don't stone her and be disobedient to Moses. Only two options. Jesus says, you without sin cast the first stone. And you know the rest of the story. The woman goes away, excuse me, all the men go away, and she says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there aren't any, and he says, I don't condemn you either, go and sin no more. And so what I want you to see is that every single time that God, Jesus, is presented with option A or option B, there's always an option C that nobody sees that is always above and beyond whatever is in front of you. And so what I also want you to see is that there's tons of times in Scripture where people of God are following God and they get themselves in an absolute pickle and everybody around them thinks that they're done for now. Hey, look at them. I cannot believe they just did that. They are toast. And God comes through and saves the day when his people are faithful to him and they do everything according to his word. And what I'm telling you is that in this political season neither choice a or choice b would be god's choice and i think what we as christ followers need to do is that whoever we put our name behind needs to be the same person that god would put his name behind because you and i are ambassadors of god we are bearing the image of god and we owe it to god to elect 
or even vote for the person that he would choose to lead our nation, whether or not the rest of the country chooses them also. And a lot of you are like, preacher, you're throwing your vote away. And because you're throwing your vote away in our two-party system, that means the other party naturally has the advantage. Let's go to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Boy, you guys are really quiet now. God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to give you that land. Everywhere that your foot is setting right now, I'm going to give it to you. It all belongs to you. We're going to run everybody out of the land. It's your land. And listen to the commencement speech. You guys know the story. Moses dies in the wilderness, and Joshua is the one who's going to take the people into the land. And listen to what God says to Joshua, getting ready to go into the land. So Joshua's leading about two million people, and they're going to take a land that doesn't belong to them, and it's going to be theirs. And this is all God telling them to do it. Now, it came about... This is chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hivites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. Verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only... Be strong and very courageous. Listen to this. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And so what is the success of Joshua dependent upon? Standing on God's word and not turning to the right or to the left of it. His success is not... God doesn't say... Go into the land, sharpen your swords, sharpen your arrows, put diesel in the tanks, and get ready to roll. He doesn't say any of that. He says your success is not dependent upon your military prowess, how good you can fight, how eloquent you are with words. Your success, Joshua, is based on you not turning to the right or to the left from this word. That's where your success will come from. And then he says, be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according, this is verse 7, according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, so that you will have success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. When will you be prosperous, and when will you have success? When you keep this word, and when you don't turn from it to the right and to the left. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Until you've got the scene. Two million people are going to take over a piece of land the size of Vermont. And they're ready to go take it. And so first order of business is let's get into it. And so Joshua, how are we going to get in the land? He says, we're going to cross the river. Oh, the river that's in its flood stage? 
yeah, we're going to cross the river in its flood stage. And so Joshua's first command as military leader is to cross a flooded river. And at this time, all of his generals have got to be, Joshua, you're off your rocker. You don't cross a flooded river. You walk around. You, you do something else. Two million people that don't know how to swim. They've, been, they've lived in a desert their whole life, Moses. You want us to cross a river now? And he says, yeah, we're going to cross the river. And so they get across the river, and they're going to march towards Jericho. All right? Jericho is probably within eyesight of the river. And so they get across the river, and now they're ready to roll over into Jericho. And I picture this like a high school football team running out of the locker room and busting through a banner, right? Now they run onto the field. There's fireworks. There's all sorts of celebration. They're ready to roll and they're going to go take over, right? They've crossed the river, broken through the barrier. And then Joshua calls a timeout. He says, timeout gang. Everybody is across the river. There's Jericho. And keep in mind that the flooded river was their only defense from the town of Jericho. Now they're sitting in the wilderness and they're vulnerable. And so Joshua says, all right, give me all the leaders. And he gets the leaders together. And you can follow this when you get home. But if you go over, it's, uh, this is in verse 2 and in verse 3. And so he gets the people all together. And what do you think he tells them? You think he comes up with a plan, how we're going to attack Jericho? He doesn't. He gets his people to a vulnerable spot, and he does exactly what God tells him. And he says, all right, leaders, this is what we're going to do. I need to circumcise all of you, and I need you to go circumcise all of the other males in Israel. And his generals have got to be like, Joshua, you've lost your ever-loving mind. We're, we're just a few miles from Jericho. We're ready to go take the city. And you want to take an eight to ten day time out so we can circumcise all of our men? That means for days we'll be left vulnerable. Joshua says, well, that's what God said to do. And so that's what they do. Put yourselves just for a second in Joshua's situation. You've heard from the Lord that you need to circumcise all these guys and then they need to go circumcise all of their other two million people. That's a board meeting that I don't want to preside over, right? But that's what they do. That's what they do. That's what God asked them to do. And God said that Joshua, your success is going to be based on you keeping my word. And so then the people go, they get healed up, they march to Jericho. And so he calls all the generals together again. And the the generals have got to be like, okay, Moses, we're ready to go. What's the plan? And he says, well, we're going to walk around the city. Okay, good. We're going to scope it out and we're going to see where we should attack. No, we're going to walk all two million people around the city. Then what? Well, that's it. That's it? Yeah. So they do it. Day two, all the military leaders come. All right, Joshua, what's the plan? We've seen all their weak spots. What are we going to do? We're going to walk around the city again. Just a couple guys? No, all two million. All of us are going to walk around the city. And day three, and day four, and day five, and day six. They have the same plan every day, he tells his military leaders. And then day seven rolls around, and they're like, all right, it's got to be go time. What are we going to do? And he says, all right, we're going to walk around the city. And they're like, dog, again? No, it's different this time. Oh, sweet. We're going we're gonna to attack them this time. No, we're going to do it seven times. And if you're one of Joshua's military leaders, you've got to think that Joshua is the absolute dumbest person in the world right now. We're going to walk around a city one time for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. That's what we're going to do. And he says, yeah. He says, but, but there's one difference. Um, I need you to be quiet when you do it. So don't talk. 
And so if you've, if you've ever led people, trying to keep two million people quiet is a, is a task. I want you to keep them all quiet. All right, we'll keep them all quiet. Then what? Well, at the end of, um, at the, end of the seventh time walking around it, uh, I want you to get the trumpet players. What? The musicians? We're going to lead with musicians. Yeah, actually, after we walk around the wall seven times, we're going to get the trumpet players out, and they're going to blow trumpets, and then the walls are going to fall down. Then we're going to go in and attack. (laughs) Joshua, have you seen how thick the walls are? Have you seen how impenetrable this city is? And Joshua says, yeah, but we're going to do what God told us to do. And we're going to leave the results to him. And so you know the story. They walk around the city seven times. They blow their trumpets. The walls fall down. And then they absolutely mutilate the city of Jericho. And none of it makes any sense except for that's what God told them to do. And the people were obedient and they did it. But there's an exception. God said, when you go into the city, don't take anything because the whole city belongs to me. But then you have a guy who decides to take a gold bar and a robe and one or two other things and they weed him out. So when they go into the next battle, because the people, because one person in the group has been sinful, the whole army loses the next battle because of one person's sin. That's Achan. And so what do they do with him? They, They get rid of the sin. They get him, his family, all of his livestock, and they stone him and then they burn him. And so... Now they're going to go into the next battle and they're going to be fresh. And then you keep going through Joshua's life. And when Joshua is walking with the Lord, the Lord is with him and the Lord is protecting him. So much so when you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you see all of the things that God did for Joshua. Okay. But there's one time if you flip over in the book of Joshua, there's one black eye that he has. That's in Joshua chapter 9. So in Joshua chapter 9, you have, well, all leading up to Joshua, there's three or four places in Scripture where the Lord is very clear with some long verses that I'm not going to read you. And he says, when you go into the land, don't make a covenant with anybody. Don't make friends with anybody. You need to destroy everybody and run them out. Well, things are going well for Joshua. They're doing things well. They're doing things on their own. And then this group of people come up called the Gibeonites. And they come, uh, they live just a couple miles down the road. And they come with worn out animals, worn out wine skins, worn out clothes. And they try to make a peace treaty or a covenant with Joshua. And the people that Joshua has and Joshua himself, they listen to the people. And it says in Joshua chapter 9, this is the most heartbreaking piece of the whole book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14 says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And so Joshua is rocking the house and rocking the house and rocking the house. And then these guys come up. And Joshua thinks he's got it. Joshua thinks common knowledge, general wisdom, old age. He thinks these things are what you should make a decision based on. And it says that he doesn't seek the counsel of the Lord. And it doesn't seem like a big deal the rest of the book, the rest of the way through the book of Joshua. But when you get over to the book of Kings, you find out that the reason that Solomon uh, is not doing well is because of Joshua's mistake. Solomon, several hundred years later, after Joshua dies, is worshiping thousands of burnt offerings on a hill in the town of Gibeon, which is the stronghold of idolatry. All because Joshua didn't obey the Lord, didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. And so what I want you brothers and sisters to see is that whenever you make any decision, not just a political vote decision, 
you need to seek the counsel of the Lord. And so if you're here and you think, golly, where'd we get that clown from preaching? How is he saying the stuff that he's saying? I disagree with it venomously. Maybe not venomously, that sounds mean. I adamantly disagree with what he's saying. I want to ask you this. Have you legitimately sought the counsel of the Lord in your decision? Has the Lord told you, vote for the lesser of the two evils? Because what I want you to see is throughout this whole book, God never says, choose the lesser of the two evils. He always says, take a stand and do what's right and be strong and courageous. We're so American though. Right? And that's, that's not, a, I'm not saying that a bad thing. I'm saying that we are so geared towards winning. Like, I'm not voting for a loser. Right? I'm not gonna go to the Kentucky Derby and put all my money on a horse that's fat and out of shape. Right? I'm gonna go to the Kentucky Derby and I'm picking a winner. When I go to that election box, by golly, I'm picking somebody who's got a chance to win. And what I want you to do is I want you to seek the counsel of the Lord. I want you to vote for whoever God calls you to vote for. And I want you to put your head on your pillow at night knowing that it's God who raises up rulers and it's God who takes them down. And I want you to know that you cast your vote in faith, not in conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom gets people nowhere in Scripture. Taking a stand... Being strong and courageous, that's what gets all the godly people everywhere. And I don't think choice A and choice B are good choices. And if you look at things conventionally, when you choose the person of your convictions, does that person have a legitimate chance of winning? Maybe not, but you're not worried about the end of the election night. You should be worried about standing before a holy God giving an account for all of your actions. That should be what your mind is set on. Do I like that? Do I want to vote for somebody who doesn't have a projected chance at winning? No, I don't. Personally, I don't want to do that. Biblically, for myself, I feel that I have to do that. And so... I'm your friend no matter who you vote for. I've got friends that are going to vote for Donald Trump. I've got friends and family. You may have to go back a little ways, but they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I've got family who are behind Bernie Sanders. I've got family who are behind all sorts of candidates. And they're adamant that they want their candidate to win. I love every single one of them. It doesn't put a dent in Thanksgiving. doesn't put a dent in Christmas. And whoever you vote for isn't going to put a dent in this Lord's Supper either. I love you all. But I think that God's Word says you need to elect someone as your representative that is moral. didn't say they had to be perfect. I'm just saying they have to be moral. And I think the two people that we have to vote for are both immoral individuals based on their track record not my opinion and so what i want you to see last and this is kind of a um there's there's more that we could do let me do this this is 100 percent unorthodox 
And I'm going to ask you to uh, give me the, the green light, but it's really difficult for him not to give me the green light. Let me do this. Let me have five more minutes of your time and let us postpone the Lord's Supper a Sunday or two for the sake of time. Okay? Because for the sake of time, uh, we'll keep you here longer than we normally would. And so I apologize for that, but uh, I feel like we should end on a certain note. All right? And so it's not normal. I'm sorry uh, to put you in a pinch. But let's do that. I apologize, guys, for uh, you guys being here. But I want you to see a couple more things. There's a guy named Hezekiah in Scripture. Hezekiah is a king of Israel, and the king of Israel is getting attacked by Assyria. There's uh, hundreds of thousands of men outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it looks like everything is going to go wrong. And so uh, Sennacherib, the ruler, he sends a message into uh, Hezekiah, and he says this. Keep in mind, there's hundreds of thousands of people outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib is taunting Hezekiah. And he says, hey, Hezekiah, check this out. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find enough men to put on them. Just like us telling Mexico, hey, Mexico, I'll give you 2,000 tanks if you can find 2,000 people that can drive them. Isn't that a pretty degrading thing to say when you're surrounding a city with hundreds of thousands of people? And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah and he says, we've sinned. We've, we've made some bad decisions. We want to get things right. And based upon Hezekiah's repentance, Isaiah tells him, listen, you're going to be delivered and not one arrow from hundreds of thousands of people is going to be shot into the city. And so what happens overnight is that God himself comes down and he kills 185,000 people overnight. When it looks like the strongest army in the world has got this little tiny city smaller than Windsor surrounded, not one arrow gets shot into the city and God destroys a whole army because of the king's repentance. And earlier on, the king had made some pretty bonehead moves. Earlier, Assyria said, hey, if you pay us a certain amount of money, we'll leave you alone. And so Hezekiah goes to the temple and takes a bunch of money and pays off, uses God's money to pay off a wicked king. He even takes the gold off of the temple doors and sends it over to Assyria so that they won't invade. And then later on, they come and invade anyways. And what wins the war for him is repentance. What wins the war for him looks like absolute foolishness, but standing on God's promises. Faith saves the whole city for now. And what I'm telling you is that we as American conservative Christians need to stand on faith, not our personal one vote. And we need to be principled voters instead of doing what the nation has told us to do. Because the nation is telling you that you need to vote for one of those two candidates. And the nation's also telling your little boys that liking boys is okay too. And so don't fall into the same trap of doing what our country is telling you to do. And we read a scripture in, uh, in Sunday school. Some of you did too. And I think it's fitting to close with. And this is uh, Matthew chapter 7. This is Matthew chapter 7 verse 24. It says this. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, chapter 7, verse 24, therefore, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Brothers and sisters, we need to be people who stand on the words of Jesus. And I don't ever see Jesus saying, choose the lesser of the two evils. I see Jesus saying, choose what is right and choose what is pure. If your son came home and he said, mom, I'm going to get married. This girl's a prostitute. I'm thinking about marrying her. And this girl doesn't claim to be a prostitute, but everything in her life points to it. Mom, who do I marry? It's simple. Don't marry any of those girls. You can do better than that. But I'm telling you, you can do better than the choices you have in front of you. And if the rest of the world chooses one of them, maybe God's giving you an opportunity to share with all of your friends why you made the principled decision that you did. Because things aren't going to get better with either two candidates, I don't think. And I want you to know that the darker and darker this country gets, the more your light for Christ is going to shine. And so be principled. Not telling you who to vote for, but I'm telling you be principled. But let your principles be his principle. Okay? I know that's not popular. I know that's not cool. But I think that's where we need to land. And so, as always, I'm around all week. You come talk to me. I would love to hear your opinion. Okay? I mean that. Make sure when you do share your opinion that you share it with me. Don't stir up trouble anywhere else. I mean that pastorally. My office is open. I've got a cell phone. You reach me anytime. I would love to talk to you. I'm not telling you don't have an opinion. I'm saying that in all of this, don't be combative. Let's talk through this, okay? I've just arrived at the place that I explained to you. I think it's right for me, and I wouldn't have preached it if I didn't think that it was right for you also as a follower of Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. That through your grace, you've forgiven sinners like us. Father, I thank you that when we do fail, you're quick to forgive us. And Father, I thank you that time and time and time again, you show us that your people have been called to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, when the future seems bleak politically, I pray that we would be a principled people who walk and stand in faith. And Father, I pray that our faith would be an encouragement to the world around us. Father, I pray that we would never accept the status quo as believers, but that we would always stand on truth, that we would always stand on your word. And when something doesn't agree with your word, I pray that we would reject it. And God, I pray that wherever we fail you, that you would give us forgiveness. And Father, I pray that if any of my opinion has been offensive, that you would grant me forgiveness. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand firm where your word is very clear. Father, we love you and we worship you. And at this time, we do pray for the future of our nation. 
And Lord, I pray for each of us that you would give us guidance in the months ahead. Lord, I pray ultimately that our hope would be in you, not in any political figure. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would stand for a hymn of invitation. Well, I enjoyed seeing all of you this week. I hope the feelings were mutual. Uh, I do want to make you aware of two things. On the church calendar, uh, there's advertised a Sunday school appreciation dinner. That is not going to happen this week. It's not because we don't appreciate you. It's because we didn't advertise and tell you that we wanted to appreciate you. Uh, uh, Pastor James and I got backed up with a mission trip, and uh, we lost all sight of uh, planning for it. And so we do want to show appreciation for all of our Sunday school teachers in the near future, but uh, we'll touch base with you and let you know when that's going to be. Uh, and then also, uh, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we're having a kid's golf clinic. And so this is going to be a really cool event for a lot of the kids. It's uh, age kindergarten through is, is whoever wants to come kid-wise through 12th grade if they want to. Uh, but we could use a little bit of help. If you have any kids' golf clubs that you want to donate, uh, we've got enough to pull off the first day, but it'd be nice to get our hands on a few more sets. So any of you with uh, your kids' golf clubs in the attic, if you could uh, maybe drop them off by my house or give me a call and I'll come get them from you, I'd appreciate it. It's going to be a really cool event uh, for the kids. We're looking forward to it. Uh, again, I wanted to let you know that I love you guys. Pray for you. Pray for me. And I'm going to ask uh, Brother Jack Powell if you close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you all for blessing you. Thank you especially for Pastor Bob. Encourage you just a little bit. Thank you for the grace you give us. Thank you all for blessing you. Give us a big blessing. Thank you, brother.